0: Pray with me, please. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, truly we do seek for your kingdom to come in and through us and with us, Lord God. We desire for you to make yourself known uh, through your word and through the person of Christ and through your creation, Lord God. And we pray that you would use us to tell your gospel story to those around us, that in meeting their physical needs, we might be a part of your plan to meet their spiritual needs as well. And so, Lord God, I pray that today as we open your word, you would set in our hearts a new purpose, a new calling. We might reorient ourselves away from the distractions and and perhaps the calling in our life that, that is leading us away from you and instead follow what you have for us, Lord God. Speak through your word today. We look forward to hearing from you. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. As many of y'all know by now, I uh, love reading about history, and you've probably heard that from me numerous times already, uh, but one of the things that I think is interesting about history is not just... Uh, uh, how people, I guess, how people are remembered, and then how that story is sort of changed over time. People sort of are remembered fondly for a while, and then they kind of go through a period where not so much. I feel like Christopher Columbus is kind of in this weird sort of we have a day, but people don't like him very much anymore. Then there's people like Hitler. You're really not going to rehab that image very much. Uh, so that perspective's not going to change. And what I think is really fascinating is when uh, people are aware of their place sort of in history, and so during their lifetime, they try to sculpt or or become the architect for how people will remember them. One of these folks is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson uh, mandated that after his name, there would only be three things on his tombstone. The first was he wanted to be known as the author of the Declaration of Independence. Fair enough. He wanted to be known as the the architect of sort of Virginia's statement on what we would call now as the separation of church and state, and he wanted to also be known as the father of the University of Virginia. Now, he left off one significant achievement. What would that be? President. He was our third president. He just decided to leave that off. That didn't rank with him. He was the first secretary of state. That didn't rank with him. He cared about those three achievements more than anything. And as you think about your life and you think about perhaps the things that might wind up on your tombstone, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to remember you for? If you could become the architect of the way that history looked back upon you, what would you want them to say? And our culture is interested in this right now. We use the expression being on the wrong side of history quite a bit. How do you want history to remember you? Well, for me... As a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that I care most about is I want people to remember that I followed after the Lord, and that I followed his purpose and his calling in my life. And if they don't remember that about me, then it really doesn't matter what else I do. And for you, if you're here today, I would say you you are interested in the very least at knowing what God's plan and purpose is for your life. You may have some trepidation about fulfilling that, and I get that. We'll talk about why that is today. But you at least want to know, what is God's plan and purpose? How would you know God's calling if you experienced it? We're going to wrap up our series today on brand new. And today we're talking about a new purpose. We're going to look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. You can turn in your Bible there. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at four marks. This isn't necessarily exhaustive, but this is four marks of a God-given purpose So you can either examine uh, what you feel like your purpose in life is, what you feel like your calling in life is now. You can examine your life now in light of these marks. Or if you're kind of at a crossroads or you're looking for something new today, you can begin to to think about, all right, what do I need to be on the lookout for? We're going to find ourselves in verse 17, and we're going to see a new calling will have new characteristics. So that's the first mark. A new calling has new characteristics. Verse 17, now from Miletus, He, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Now, Paul's going back where it all began. He's going back to Jerusalem, and he's on a very specific mission. He'll tell us later that he feels like the Holy Spirit has compelled him to go there, that he doesn't really have a choice. But with him, he is bringing a load of money that he's collected from the churches that he's planted in order to alleviate the poverty that the Jerusalem church is experiencing. So Paul is in a hurry. He wants to get there before Pentecost and he also doesn't want to travel over land because traveling over land in that day and age was dangerous. You could be uh, attacked by bandits or brigands and and he would lose the money. So he sends away to the Ephesian church, which is not on the coast. And he says, come and visit me in Miletus because I'm not leaving and I want to say goodbye to you. I want to impart some wisdom to you. I want to remind you of who I am and what I have done around you. And what I think is interesting about what Paul does here is he begins this speech, this farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. He doesn't talk, begin talking anyway. He doesn't begin by talking about what he accomplished or the success that they had together in Ephesus. He talks about the way he went about pursuing his calling. And so let's look at some of the characteristics that he mentions that would be characteristics of a God-given purpose. Look at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility. All right, let's stop there. Humility is a key component of a God-given calling. He emphasizes the humility of his work. The word humility means lowly, undistinguished, of no account, pliant, servile. I think another way to understand humility is a proper perspective of how things really are. You don't think too much of yourself. You don't think too little of yourself. You understand your place in God's economy. And notice that Paul indicates this. Go back to 19. He says he's serving the Lord. This was really where Paul derived his sense of humility. Not from what he was doing. Because if you would sit there and say, well, Paul was of no account, surely not. He planted bunches of churches He's probably the greatest Christian of all time, arguably. He wrote many books of the Bible, saw tons of vision. I mean, just the man's life is replete with stories of great accomplishment. Of anybody, he should not be lowly. And he even goes on later to say, I count my life of little worth. Well, I count it as worth. But you see, Paul did not derive his sense of accomplishment, his sense of purpose, his sense of identity, from what he was doing. He derived it from who he was serving. And if you are serving the Lord in your purpose, it does not matter what you are doing. It will be glorifying to God and it will be significant. It will matter. It will have eternal weight and eternal glory. If you're deriving your sense of purpose from what you're doing, you'll become frustrated. You'll feel a, a, a sense of senselessness and purposelessness. You'll cut adrift. You'll be like, why am I doing this? But if you stay anchored to the Lord in the midst of your calling, again, whatever it is that you're doing, then be something that's God honoring to him and have significance and purpose. So, how do you become humble? Well, the first thing I think you've got to do is you've got to pray for it, right? Even the act of prayer itself is humility. And then I would say, in the context of that prayer, you need to ask the Lord to be gentle. Because if you've ever asked for humility, sometimes that comes through humiliation which is fun. It's not fun. You need to talk about yourself less. Talk about yourself less. I have a friend of mine named Scott Orsak. Scott's a member of this church. He's fantastic. Him and his wife come over every other week to, to help us with our kids and just kind of hang out with our families. Great friend. And Scott has this uncanny ability. He's like a Teflon human being. You can ask him questions about like, hey, how's work going? In Two minutes. He's got you talking about yourself, and you're like, 20 minutes later, I'm like, I still don't know how his job is going. Because he's just a very good listener and very good at getting other people to talk about themselves. It's a gift I do not have. Except the fact that not everybody's going to approve of you. Not everybody is going to approve of everything that you're doing. It's not a popularity contest. I think prideful people think that everybody needs to be on their side. And then we need to reject entitlement. Entitlement. Prideful people tend to think that they're entitled to things. In our culture, in our particular situation, our socioeconomic status tends to derive that sense of entitlement. We need to push away from that. We need to pray that God would open up our eyes to see parts of our lives where we have become entitled and ask that he cleanse us of that. We need to repent of those things. Paul's just not humble, though. He's also passionate. Let's keep reading. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So the cool thing about Paul's journey back to Jerusalem is you see parallels with Jesus' own journey to Jerusalem where he's crucified. There's tears. There's trials. There are Jewish sects that are trying to uh, impede the travel. They're attacking him. Uh, uh, He also is accompanied by disciples, just like Jesus is accompanied by disciples. There's a lot of parallels, and I think Luke is doing this intentionally as the author of both the Gospel of Luke and the the book of Acts. Paul uh, seems to always run into tears and trials and difficulty, right? I think my favorite story of Paul's is in Acts chapter 14. Him and Barnabas roll into town, and and they're preaching, and some some Jewish people from uh, Antioch and Iconium roll into the city called Lystra where they are, and they stir up a riot. And it's so bad that they, they, they bring Paul outside the city and they stone him to what they think is to death. They think he's dead. They've thrown so many rocks at him. So they all go back in the city. Well, the disciples come out to collect the body and Paul like pops back up. And I'm like, I don't know if that's a miracle or if they just didn't do a very good job or if Paul like played possum. He's like, I'm just gonna lay here still and they'll just stop. But Paul pops back up. And the amazing thing is he just goes back into the city where they tried to kill him. And then later on you read that he goes to Lystra and then he goes into Iconium and Antioch, the places where the people came from who tried to kill him. Now this isn't some like Liam Neeson vengeance streak that Paul's on. He's not going into these towns and like seeking revenge. No, he's bringing the gospel. He's like, if they're attacking me, they need the Lord. They need to know Christ. That is passion. Passion that says, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what it costs my comfort. I don't care what it costs my my wealth, my portfolio, what it costs my life, my health. I am going to pursue what God has for me. And nothing is gonna stop me. That's passion. Now, not everything we are passionate about is God's call in our life. I am passionate about baseball. It is currently not the call in my life. If I can catch up to a 99-mile-an-hour fastball one day, maybe it becomes the calling in my life. But one of the things that I am passionate about is teaching and learning. I'm beginning to understand more about myself and realizing that, that if something doesn't involve learning or teaching, I become very disinterest, disinterested in it very quickly. I like to learn and I like to teach. It's where I find my passion being, being stoked. Now, this doesn't always mean that you'll be passionate about your calling. You won't feel that passion, but you will feel a sense of compulsion. I have to do this. You may go through seasons where you take a break, you may go through seasons where you take a sabbatical, and that is all well and good. Rest is righteousness. But you also need to recognize that there's, if it's your calling, you just, you can't get away from it. The Lord won't let you get away from it. At the same time, your passion for your calling should not be, um, should not outweigh your passion for people. If your passion for your calling is outweighed by your passion for people, then that's not the calling of the Lord in your life. And I know this because God's passion is for his people. He sent his son to die for his glory, yes, but so that he could rescue a people for himself. So we need to be passionate. We also need to be consistent. Be consistent. Look at verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's consistent. Public, in the home, Jews, Gentiles, didn't matter the audience, didn't matter the place. What he spoke was truth every single time. It didn't change for the audience. It didn't change for the size of the audience. And he's telling telling these Ephesian elders, you need to look at my life and do the same thing because there will be temptations for you to water down the gospel, for you to change the way that you go about doing things for your own personal gain and your own personal success. And you can't do that if you're pursuing God's call in your life. And so the same has to go for us. Cannot be so obsessed with popularity and so obsessed with being on the right side of history that we water down the truth of, the, of God, the truth of the gospel? Now, there are, there are core things that we should never waver on. There are some things that perhaps are stylistic that, yeah, we can change. We should always be thinking about the people who are not in the community of faith and how to bring them in absolutely. That doesn't mean you change core things. So that's what it looks like from the outside. I think, I think if, if somebody were to look at somebody pursuing God's calling in their life, I think they would see a humble person who is passionate and consistent. And I think that's what somebody should see from the outside. But then it raises the question, what should it feel like? What should it look like from my perspective as I pursue God's calling? Well, a, calling, a new calling should have new conditions. I'm going to read 22, and it's, it's going to be a fairly long segment. But this is kind of the meat of Paul's speech. I didn't want to break it up. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you all this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's understanding of his ministry is like a train on a track. He's not an airplane that can just go wherever he wants. He's a train on a track. He's following what God's will is for his life, and he will not deviate from that course, even if it costs him pain, suffering, difficulty, trial, tears. It's going to lead to him having discomfort, loss, loneliness. He's going to be separated from people that he loves and cares for. And so we do the same. Pursuing God's call in your life will lead to discomfort. It will bring you into uncomfortable places. It will bring you into places where you have to sacrifice, perhaps. Sacrifice a lot. Sacrifice everything. And the world around you is big on sacrifice. You're going to hear a lot of interviews this week as athletes talk about being in the biggest game of the year, right? And they're going to say how, since I was in peewee football, I sacrificed to get to this moment. This is the most important day, most important game of my life. I worked hard. We worked hard. We sacrificed. This is why we go to practice sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. But they are sacrificing for their own glory, for their own trophies, for their own wealth, for their own gain, for the most part. The world around you will tell you it is good to sacrifice as long as you get something out of it. But that's not what Paul does. Paul does not sacrifice for his own glory. He sacrifices for the glory of God and the good of other people. That's what Paul sacrifices for. That's what moves him as he pursues God's calling in his life. So if we're going to pursue God's calling in our life, we have to work out and get rid of this what's-in-it-for-me attitude. We have to persecute that sense in our own life. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? We have to be willing to forfeit our success, our fame, our glory, our resources in order to pursue what God has for us. Now, obviously, I think it's very difficult to start there. I do think when you come to know Christ for the first time, when you accept him as your Lord, yes, you are saying, Lord, I want to follow you no matter what it costs. But as you grow in Christ, sometimes you begin to realize, or as you make that pursuit, you begin to realize what that actually means. And it becomes difficult to actually sacrifice those things. But I think our God is a gracious God who wants to train up his followers so that they are ready and willing to sacrifice when he asks them to. So you have in your bulletin there, you have a card that says 2020 Commitments, my 2020 Commitments. And I think this is a good starting place. This is a great sort of, as you're looking to pursue God's calling in your life, this is a great starting place for you to fill in some blanks and say, this is where I am and this is the next step for me. This is where I'd like to be next. So the first one there, I'll pray regularly for PCBC and its kingdom work, as well as for those in physical and spiritual need. So many of our prayers are located in ourself. That's the what's in it for me attitude. There's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. But how often do you pray for the work of God in the kingdom? How often do you pray for our church? I read a stat this week that said eight Christians are killed every day around the world. So when I've struggled to stay focused or struggled to do, uh, spend time with the Lord or, or just struggled this week in any way, I think to myself, there's eight people who died today who kept the faith, and so I need to keep the faith. Again, get, do, do what you have to do to keep your eyes up on the larger kingdom work. I'll be in worship with fellow believers. The, the, the blank there is for frequency. How often are you gonna be here with us? Obviously, we want you here every week. But that might not be where you're at right now. Maybe there's a work conflict or something like that. So what are you going to commit to? I'm going to be at Park City's Baptist Church worshiping with people X number of weeks a month. I'll be accountable to others in a specific group. Write down a small group there. Write down a connect group there. A group of men or women that are going to stay with you and hold you accountable. I'll serve regularly in this ministry. What area are you going to serve? Again, if you want to get this uh, uh, what's in it for me attitude, we begin to serve to get rid of that attitude. I'll mentor or disciple someone in their spiritual journey. You might think, well, I'm not very far along. If you know the name of Jesus, you are farther along than some people. So write down a name there. I'll give financially to the kingdom work of Jesus through PCBC. You can write an amount there, you can write a percentage, you can write a frequency, whatever it is that you need to write there. I'll support the mission efforts of our church. You can put giving, praying, learning about a people group, maybe committing to go on a mission trip this year. I will pray and focus on building relationships with people that need to know the name of Jesus. Again, somebody that doesn't know Christ. I guarantee you have them in your sphere of influence. And so that's where you can start. You can start with just a simple card, put it up on your fridge as a reminder of what you're committing to do today and, and, and in the future. Because a, a calling in the Lord has new conditions, new circumstances with which you follow him. Now, as we sacrifice, we also begin to think about what, what, are we, what are we giving up, right? So what am I concerned with? So a new calling has a new concern. Paul moves at this point. He begins to talk about uh, what the Ephesian elders need to do. For he goes from this is what I did to this is what you need to do. And he starts talking to them about the reality that as they pursue this call and the work that God has for them, they're going to have to be mindful of people. Because God's call in your life will always bring you to encounter people. We don't live on islands. No one is an island, right? So you're gonna be with and around people. And again, God's goal is to bring people to himself. So Paul tells them to pay attention, to be on the watch out for, and he moves kind of out of concentric circles. He starts with themselves, then he starts with with the people who are around them, and then he goes to people that are outside the church or, or people that might be threats to the work of God. So let's walk through this. One, concern for yourself, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Now, the way you read this is you might say, well, doesn't he mean like, like y'all watch out for each other? That's a possibility. It's a legitimate possibility. I think that Paul would have said, though, watch out for one another. I think he's saying pay attention to yourself. Like you need to shepherd yourself. And you might say, well, Travis, didn't you just say like I need to be willing to sacrifice like everything, discomfort, my health, all this other stuff. Like what is, isn't this contradictory? I would say No. God does not view his people as disposable parts in his quest for glory. God does not want to just use you up and throw you away. God desires you to be in his family, to be loved, to be cared for. That's why Jesus died for you, to bring you into the family. You're not disposable. And so if you're going to shepherd other people, if you're going to care for other people, you have got to shepherd yourself well too. You've gotta be aware of of your own health, your own well-being, it's essential. So what does this look like? You need to be healthy. You gotta be physically healthy. You need to be nutritionally healthy. You need to be spiritually healthy, emotionally healthy. And if you are not able to get on track in those ways, maybe there's an area of that that you struggle in, then you get help. If you're having a hard time emotionally, you find a counselor or a psychologist. Spend time with them. You're struggling nutritionally. Get a nutritionist. Struggling physically. Hire somebody to help you. If you can't hire somebody, talk to somebody. Find a friend. It's important that we take care of ourselves. Go to sleep is another great way to take care of yourself. You're not a machine. Go to bed. Turn off Netflix. Put your phone somewhere else. Throw it across the house. Also rest. Rest which is not just sleeping. Rest, turn your brain off, let work stay work. God desires that you enjoy him just as much as he desires that you work with him. And then play. There's a wonderful new like thoughts process of theology now called a theology of play. It's this idea that God desires that his people enjoy his creation, enjoy being with him. So it's this theology of play, which I really love because I wind up being a playful person So find a hobby. Do something that's not a part of your calling. Not to distraction and not to addiction. Something that is still God-honoring, but have a hobby. Again, you're not a machine. Not a machine. So after you have concern for yourself, you need to have concern for others in the community. Again, look, in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He gives them two reasons why they should look out for people in their sphere of influence. Now for the Ephesian elders, that sphere of influence was their church. There may have been one church in Ephesus that they were all shepherding. Probably more likely there's a bunch of house churches in Ephesus and these are all kind of individual pastors. In your day-to-day life, God has put you in the place to have influence and to have care for, to shepherd people that you meet on a regular basis. Employees, bosses, supervisors, Kids, parents, you have people all around you that God has put you there so that you might help tend to their needs, spiritual, physical, whatever. And so the first thing he says, he says that um, you are overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The Holy Spirit has put you in those places to care for those people. So as you're pursuing God's calling, you're going to be put around people. And rather than running over them in some effort to, to get what God has for you to achieve, Instead, you have got to care for them. You've got to care for them. And then he says this, and this is really fascinating, verse 28. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Very rarely in Scripture, and I think this might be the only place, does it talk about God bleeding. Usually when it references the blood, it references Christ, it references Jesus, it references the Lord, but it doesn't reference God very often. And I think Paul or Luke does this very intentionally. He's talking about the value of human beings. Something is valuable in as much as what someone's willing to pay for it. Something's worth a million dollars if somebody's willing to pay a million dollars for it, right? What God is saying here through his word is that people are valuable because I bled to, I gave them up the most precious thing, myself, to acquire them. I bled for them. So we cannot look at people as instruments to be used for our success, our glory, our fame, our fortune, and then discard them. We cannot do that and be following God's purpose. Otherwise, you're just putting people into a meat grinder and discarding them. That's not righteousness. That's not pursuing God's call in your life. Accomplishment, success, winning, these things matter very little. If the roadside of your success is littered with the bodies of people that you've abused, cajoled, manipulated, maybe that you've just ignored, You know, ask that God would open your eyes. Your calling should not cost everybody's blood but your own. And remember that God values people and God is also a righteous judge. And if we have done these things and have not turned from it, We'll have to answer for that, to him, because he cared for them. So confess, repent. All of us have used people. All of us have. Confess, repent. Ask that God would change your heart towards them, would change the way that you work with people, the way that you interact with them, so that you might not use them, but that you yourself might be used. And then we need to have concern for those who are outside. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, therefore be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's worried that outside the church, outside the the area of influence, or even within your sphere of influence, people are gonna rise up and they're gonna distract you from the calling that God has in your life. They're gonna try and make your calling about you. Anybody familiar with the the mythological story of Jason and the Argonauts? Jason is on the pursuit of the Golden Fleece. He's got the Argo, the the boat, and and one of the the, the things they have to pass by, I think on their way back, are the sirens. The sirens are mythological creatures that have beautiful voices. They're these kind of female type creatures uh, that sit on the, the rocky shores and they sing beautiful songs. And sailors are so enraptured with the songs that that they jump overboard and try to swim to the sirens and they wind up drowning or they turn their ships and they crash them on the rocks. And so Jason has his men kind of plug their ears with cotton balls or beeswax or something. They didn't have cotton balls back then. Uh, You know, went to the store, picked up some cotton balls. It was fine. With beeswax so they can't hear the call. And then they have him strapped to the mast because he still wants to hear the music. And he's screaming out that they would turn the ship and they just keep going. They just keep going. There are going to be sirens that come into your life and call you away from the Lord, saying, come here. This can be about you. You can have it all. You can have it both. You can have it any way you want. Just come. And you know what's going to happen? Not only will you wreck your calling on the rocks, you'll wreck your life on the call of, of those sirens. You'll crash on the rocks of that call. Some of you maybe have already done that. You've experienced it in your life. It's a rough, rough shipwreck. Things like lust, pride, greed, revenge, manipulation. You'll hit those rocks. We need to pray that the Lord would strap us to the mast and keep going. Lord, I can't go on, but you are going to have to carry me through this. Now, if you're like me, and I I hope a lot of you are, I feel like I fit in here, I guess that would make sense. You find all this very daunting. The call of God in my life to pursue that, it sounds very intimidating. And frankly, it makes me a little nervous to get started. I need something new. I need a new motivation. I need a new catalyst. And a new calling does have a new catalyst. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul commends them to the grace of God and the word of grace. He commends them to the gospel. He says, this is, this is what's going to keep you going. This is what's going to get you started. This is, this is everything for you. This is the catalyst, the gospel, the truth that I can't do this on my own, the truth that I can't make it, the truth that, that I'm broken and I'm a sinner. I've done things that have fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that, that God even wants to do anything with me, much less have a purpose for me, should be humbling for us but he sends his son to die on the cross for us, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might have a relationship with him and then we might fulfill the purpose that he has for us. You've got to put your faith in Christ from the get-go. Otherwise, whatever calling you have in your life, it will not have eternal significance. But it's not just about this initial sort of trust in the gospel and then you go on. No, the gospel has to be everything. And this is why you can't be afraid to pursue God's call in your life because because there's the gospel. So there is no fear in perfect love. So I know that if I encounter failure, if I encounter difficulty, if I encounter trials, the Lord Jesus is going to be there with me. He encountered trials. He encountered difficulty. And he loves me through the failure. He loves me through the difficulty. He loves me through the challenges. He suffered discomfort. It is exceptionally critical for us that as we pursue the calling of God, we return again and again and again to the truth of the gospel. In fact, Paul makes this connection in verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. He remembers what Jesus told him. Now, obviously, as you kind of examine yourself, you see the kind of weird motivations, the impure motivations that pop up. What are you you supposed to do with that? Well, verse 21, he actually tells us, go back to 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to have repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance is looking at those things, those calls of the sirens who, who dr- bring us out into perhaps our, our lusts and our greeds and our, our manipulations and, and our self focused and our selfishness. And as you begin to pray and you begin to pursue God's call in your life, you'll start noticing those things and you're like, wow, I really am pretty self centered. And so you confess and you repent, you go to the Lord and they say, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't know that was there. I did know it was there and I haven't dealt with it. Please forgive me. And then you turn from it. Now, again, you'll do this enough and it can begin to be daunting. You can begin to feel overwhelmed. You begin to feel like, God, why do you even put up with me? I'm just going to quit. But that's where the faith in Jesus comes in. Because he cannot give up on us. Because he can't give up on his son. If you are in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit's coming and living inside of you, then guess what? He cannot abandon you. He will not abandon you because he can't disown himself. And so we don't get overwhelmed. We continue to pursue God's call in our life. And you can't wait. You can't wait to do this later. You can't wait to say, well, I'm going to get what I can get out of it. And then later on, I'm going to turn it over to the Lord. Then later on, I'm going to give it to the Lord. Then later on, I'm going to pursue what God has for me. I'll tell you this. If you don't give God everything when you have nothing, you will give him nothing when you have everything. You gotta start today. You gotta start somewhere. Today's just as good of a day as any. You got a card in front of you that can maybe help you with that. Maybe that's not a tool for you. Maybe that's not something you wanna use. Maybe you need to examine your life and say, my life right now is not characterized with humility or with passion or with consistency. Or maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I don't have this, I haven't gotten rid of this what's in it for me attitude. I'm very much right in the middle of what's in it for me. Maybe you're approaching your marriage that way. Maybe you're approaching friendships that way. What do I get out of this? Maybe you're not concerned about other people. And you're just chewing them up and spitting them out as you pursue this thing in your life. Another great literary character is Ahab, right? As he pursues the white whale in the book Moby Dick. Spoiler alert, again, the book's like 150 years old. The pursuit causes him to wreck his vessel. And I believe everybody dies, except for one person who tells the story. Don't be Ahab. Be like Paul. And more than that, give your life to Christ. Be you, but a sanctified you that's pursuing God's call in your life and return to the gospel again and again and again like some kind of fountain of youth that just rejuvenates you every day. You go back to the gospel. You remember the hope that we have in the gospel that Jesus Christ died for me and it doesn't matter what he calls me to. It's gonna be significant. It's gonna matter eternally. I may not understand it. It may hurt, but it doesn't matter because Jesus hurt for me. And I wanna say thank you by giving him my life giving him everything I've got. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for today. Because today we have, it's really all we have, it's all we've been assured of, Lord. There are people in this room, Lord, who have spent every day before today pursuing their own ends, pursuing their own desires, pursuing their own sort of search for significance, Lord God. And I pray that today through your word they've heard Paul's speech. They said, I want to be remembered that way. I want to be remembered as somebody who was... Was consistent and humble and passionate and was self-sacrificing. I want that to mark my calling, my pursuit from here on out. And Lord, I see my need for you in the gospel. I pray that people would come to know you today. For those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we would look at our own lives and that the calling that you've given us, Lord God, I pray that we would examine it. If it's not of you, Lord, I pray that we would abandon it. But if it is of you, Lord, all of us need sanctification. I pray that you would sanctify, that you'd make holy, that you'd make righteous the pursuits that we have in our lives. We look forward to the work that you're going to do and we pray that you would be gentle as you do it. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.